0: The unfortunate accident, which has deprived me of nearly the whole of the fruits of this excursion, has obliged me in the following sheets to rely in no small degree upon my memory, needs not here to be detailed. It will find its place in the narrative of this voyage. Suffice it now to observe that the only things rescued from the flames were a portion of my journal containing little more than the occurrences of the first four weeks of my stay on the island and an Icelandic lady's wedding dress, which was saved by the extraordinary exertions of the steward of the ship. Of the rest of my manuscripts and collections, including plants, books, drawings, minerals, and other subjects of natural history, nothing could be preserved. William Jackson Hooker, 1811. 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change, a time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories—true stories—of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out all one word, two d's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. episode 31 the great iceland road trip the world as it existed in the second decade of the 19th century was much bigger metaphorically speaking than it is today i'm recording this episode at my house in oregon usa but within minutes of this podcast going live people all over the world will be hearing my voice i know for instance that i have a listener in morocco whoever you are i've seen you downloading the show Morocco pops up on my map every time I upload an episode. Our world, unthinkable to the people who lived 200 years ago, is knitted together principally by technology. In addition to communications technology, we've got jet planes and other miraculous devices that allow us to travel, safely and relatively cheaply, from one side of the planet to the other. Though, thanks to climate change, that may not be true for that much longer. Unquestionably, though, the world is much more known than it was two centuries ago. All the blank spots on the map have been filled in. Yet, there was a great deal of curiosity about the world in the second decade, especially in English-speaking countries, principally Britain, but to a lesser extent the United States. In a world without telegraphic communication, where a voyage across the Atlantic was considered warp speed if it took less than five weeks, the principal means by which people got to know what distant lands were like was through books written by people who had been to those places. Indeed, the travelogue, as we might call it, was one of the most popular forms of mass media in the 18-teens. Books would be published, usually in London or Edinburgh, containing detailed accounts not just of people's travels through distant lands, but of the lands themselves. What kind of animals lived there? How often it rained? What the winds were like? What kind of plants grew there? These travelogues seem a little dull to us today, but they were pulse-pounding page-turners in 1810. In addition to satisfying the curiosity of the reading public about what distant countries were like, the travelogues of the 18 teens, especially in Britain, served another important function. In a cultural and intellectual sense, they conquered distant lands. One could argue that the sun never set on the British Empire even in 1810, with possessions as far away as India and Australia, but the British saw themselves and their empire as more than just the sum of their parts. Britain's powerful navy operated almost with impunity in every ocean, and wherever there was a foreign shore with exotic birds or beetles yet undiscovered, you could be sure that sooner or later some pasty Brit would show up and start going around drawing pictures with colored pencils and showering everything that moved, and a lot that didn't, with hard-to-pronounce Latin names. It didn't matter whether these places had British garrisons or government houses, or whether the old Union Jack fluttered in some Arctic or tropical breeze above them. If Englishman had been there and cataloged its wonders in the exacting way that Englishmen did, a place had been made legible and understandable to the English-speaking world. But only if that pasty Brit with his colored pencils made it home to write a book about it. Tonight's episode is based on one of those travelogues. In the summer of 1809, a 24-year-old English botanist by the name of William Jackson Hooker made a trip to what was then a mysterious island on the chilly fringe of Europe. Now, don't get me wrong, Iceland was by no means unknown in 1809. It had been settled by Europeans since the Middle Ages, after all. But it was still far enough away from the center of gravity of the Western world that it certainly seemed unknown, or at least less known. Thus, it was ripe for the taking in one of these odd cultural expeditions. Hooker's account, titled cleverly, Journal of a Tour in Iceland in the Summer of 1809, published first privately in 1811 and then reprinted publicly two years later, is more than just a boring second-decade travelogue that I might have pulled out of a hat from numerous similar works. Having read a lot of 18-teens literature, I can say that Hooker had a kind of unique style. and A lot of what he wrote was, though probably true, delivered in a considerably more tongue-in-cheek way than many of his contemporaries would have done it. Plus, his colorful account of what Iceland was like at the beginning of the second decade, remember 1809, we're counting as part of the second decade. His account brings home just how big the world was back then, and how alien it must have seemed to a lot of people. The bit about the rancid butter, for instance, which we'll get to, is just bizarre. It certainly sets a unique and unusual scene, and Hooker's travelogue represents a fascinating snapshot in time of a place that, even in today's world, is very unique and distinctive. In 1809, Iceland was far different than it is in our own time. We think of it today as a rocky volcanic island full of hot springs with a very high standard of living, populated by very nice people who speak an incomprehensible language and eat fermented shark meat. The volcanoes, hot springs, and weird food were certainly part of Iceland in 1809, but it was far from the progressive modern paradise that it is today. At that time, Iceland was one of the poorest and least developed countries in Europe. It was not an independent nation. Having been founded by Norwegian Vikings in the 9th century, it eventually came under the domination of Denmark, and was still a Danish colony at the beginning of the 19th century. In fact, Iceland would not gain full independence until 1944. So there's the background for our travels tonight. This is going to be an unusual episode of the Second Decade Show. While I often try to use quotes from primary source documents, this particular episode, after the music cue, is going to consist of nothing but extended quotes from Hooker's book. He can tell it better than I can, and after all, he was there and I wasn't. Part of me is glad I wasn't. I'll add a little coda at the end of the episode, but between now and then, although it's my 21st century American voice, the words you're going to hear over the next half hour are those of William Jackson Hooker, age 24, British botanist, traveler, adventurer, and all-around party guy, such as it was in 1809. So let's sign on, push off, and embark on the Great Iceland road trip. Friday, June 9th, 1809. Early this morning, the Margaret and Anne, Captain Lilson bound for Reykjavik in Iceland, being ready for sea, and my luggage having been previously sent on board, Mr. Phelps, Mr. Jorgensen, and myself embarked from Gravesend. From the excellent accommodation which the vessel afforded, and the pleasant society the two companions of my voyage, I flattered myself, and not in vain, with as agreeable an excursion as the nature of the circumstances would allow. Friday, however, being considered by all sailors as an unlucky day to commence a voyage, our people were so tardy in our preparations to get under way that, before noon, a violent hurricane, which came on and continued all day, obliged us to keep our station, at least as so much as the storm would permit, for we dragged our anchors a considerable way. The howling of the wind among the rigging, the sight of a number of large vessels that were driven on shore, and of boats in distress in every direction upon the river, did not strike us with very pleasing sensations, although we were riding in perfect safety. To add to the scene, a house close to the shore, was discovered to be in flames. Towards evening Saturday, the storm abated, and early the next morning, with a charming breeze, we sailed down the river. About the hour of midnight on the 14th, we descried land on the horizon, or rather snow, for as we approached it, we could discover nothing but mountains of prodigious magnitude, covered on every side with snow, and most distinctly seen, from being backed by a dark cloud, though at the distance, as we computed, of 50 miles. On the highest ridge of these mountains were some angular and projecting precipices, which cast deep shadow on the white snow, when the early rays of the sun were striking upon them, breaking the uniformity of such an extended outline. This range of mountains we afterwards discovered to be Klofa Júkul. Júkul means a range of snow mountains in the southeastern part of Iceland, and Mr. Phelps and I gazed upon it with astonishment and delight till a late hour in the morning. I kept upon deck watching with my telescope every little object as it came in view. The house of the physician Dr. Clogg, a neat white building covered with boards, was pleasantly situated upon a flat grassy peninsula, and a little beyond it we discovered the small town of Reykjavik. About three in the afternoon we came to an anchor at a short distance from the town, and at four we went on shore landing upon a beach wholly formed of decomposed lava, of a black color, and in some places almost as fine as sand. At least a hundred natives, principally women, welcomed us to their island and shouted on our landing. It was now the season for drying fish, and they were employed in this operation at the time of our arrival. Some were turning those that were laid out to dry upon the beach. Another group was carrying in hand barrows the fish from the drying place to a spot higher up the beach, where other persons were employed in packing them in great stacks and pressing them down with stones to make them flat. Most of this business was performed by women, some of whom were very stout and lusty, but excessively filthy, and as we passed the crowd, a strong and very rancid smell assailed our noses. The first peculiarity about the women, which strikes the attention of a stranger, is the remarkable tightness of their dress around the breast, where the jacket is from their early infancy, always kept so closely laced as to be quite flat, which, while it must be a great inconvenience to them, entirely ruins their figure in the eyes of those who come from a more civilized part of the world. Some of the old women were the very ugliest mortals I've ever seen, but among the younger ones, there were a few who would be reckoned pretty, even in England, and in point of fairness of complexion, an Iceland girl, who has not been too much exposed to the inclemencies of the weather, will stand the comparison with ladies of any country. Thursday, June 22nd. This day was exceedingly cold and wet, and in the early part of it there was so thick a fog that we could not see the town from our vessel. As soon as we'd breakfasted, my luggage was conveyed on shore and placed in Mr. Savignac's house, where it was proposed that while we continued together, we should all meet at our meals. I had this morning a favorable opportunity of looking at the town, which consists of about 60 or 70 houses, standing in two rows of nearly equal length. These are all framed in Norway, then taken to pieces for stowage in a ship and conveyed here. The warehouses are also shops, where the merchants retail cloth, earthenware, tin and iron utensils, sugar, coffee, tobacco, snuff, rye flour, shoes, rum, in short, every necessity of life, and they take in exchange for exportation, wool, tallow, fish, fish oil, seal oil, fox skins, swan skins, eiderdown, worsted stockings and mittens, and sometimes dried mutton. At the western corner of this row of shops are the stocks, or what might rather be called a pillory, for the culprit stands upon a block and has his arms fixed in two holes, formed by iron clasps, on the sides of an upright pole about four feet from the bottom. Still further up the street is a sort of tavern where the Danes amused themselves with cards in a room which was built for the purpose of holding a considerable party and was afterwards the scene of our Icelandic festivities. Tuesday, June 27th, this being the day appointed for paying our respects to the old stiffsampsman, Governor, Stevenson, Mr. Phelps, Mr. Jorgensen, and myself embarked at 12 o'clock in an Icelandic sailing boat with eight rowers and had a passage of about four miles to his house, which stands on the pleasant little island of Vidot. When we were within a few hundred yards of the house, the stiff stampsman came to welcome us to the country, and to his little island. We were immediately ushered through the portico, where we were obliged to stoop at the doorway, into a spacious hall with a large wooden staircase, and hence through a large and lofty parlor into his bedroom, where I presented to him a letter of introduction, and a present of prints and books from Sir Joseph Banks, whose very name made him almost shed tears. We found the table set out in the large room, which I've already mentioned. It had a pretty good boarded floor and walls that were once whitewashed. The furniture consisted of five wainscot chairs, a table with two large chests of drawers on which were displayed such articles of use as approached the nearest to China. Some of them, I believe, actually were so. When we sat down to table, a little interruption was caused by the breaking down of the chair upon which His Excellency had seated himself. But this was soon settled, as there was fortunately still a vacant one in the room to replace it. On the cloth was nothing but a plate, a knife and fork, a wine glass, and a bottle of claret for each guest, except that in the middle stood a large and handsome glass caster of sugar with a magnificent silver top. The natives are not in the habit of drinking malt, liquor, or water, nor is it customary to eat salt with their meals. The principal articles of food among the Icelanders are fish and butter, the formerly mostly eaten in a dry state and uncooked, the latter made without salt, with all the whey and superfluous moisture pressed out, in which state it will keep for 15 or 20 years, acquiring in the interim a degree of rancidity, which is not unpleasant to an Icelandic palate. The dishes are brought in singly, Our first was a large turbinous soup, which is a favorite addition to the dinners of the richer people, and is made of sago, claret, and raisins, boiled so as to become almost a mucilage. We were helped to two soup plates full of this, which we ate without knowing if anything more was to come. No sooner, however, was the soup removed than two large salmon, boiled and cut in slices, were brought on, and with them melted butter, looking like oil mixed with vinegar and pepper. This, likewise, was very good, when we had, with some difficulty, cleared our plates, we hoped we had finished our dinners. Not so, for there was then introduced a tureen full of the eggs of the Cree, or Great Turn, boiled hard, of which a dozen were put upon each of our plates, and for sauce we had a large basin of cream mixed with sugar, in which there were four spoons, so that we all ate out of the same bowl, placed in the middle of the table. We petitioned hard to be excused from eating the whole of the eggs upon our plates, but we petitioned in vain. You are my guests, said the governor, and this is the first time you've done me the honor of a visit. Therefore, you must do as I would have you in the future. When you come to see me, you may do as you like. In his own excuse, he pleaded his age for not following our example, to which we can make no reply. We devoured with difficulty our eggs and cream, but had no sooner dismissed our plates than half a sheep, well-roasted, came on, with a mess of sorrel, called by the Danes scurvy-grass, boiled, mashed, and sweetened with sugar. It was to no purpose we assured our host that we, were, we had already eaten more than would do us good. He filled our plates with the mutton and sauce, and made us get through it as well we could, although any one of the dishes, of which we had before partaken, was sufficient for the dinner of a moderate man. However, even this was not all, for a large dish of waffles, as they are here called, that is to say a sort of pancake, made of wheat flour, flat and roasted in a mold which forms a number of squares on top, succeeded the mutton. They were not more than half an inch thick about the size of an octavo book. The stiff samsman said he would be satisfied if each of us would eat two of them, and with these moderate terms we were forced to comply. For bread, Norway biscuit, and loaves made of rye were served up. For our drink we had nothing but claret of which we were all compelled to empty the bottle that stood by us, and this too out of tumblers rather than wine glasses. It is not the custom in this country to sit after dinner over the wine, but we had instead of it to drink just as much coffee as the Sif stampsman thought proper to give us. The coffee was certainly extremely good, and we trusted it would terminate our feast. But all was not yet over, for a huge bowl of rum punch was brought in, and handed around in large glasses pretty freely, and to every glass a toast was given. If at any time we flagged in drinking, Baron banks was always the signal for emptying our glasses, in order that we might have them filled with bumpers to drink to his health, a task that no Englishman ought to hesitate about complying with most gladly. During the dinner, a large sheep, the finest of the flock, was brought into the room for us to see, and was then sent aboard our boat as a present. We were threatened with still another bowl of rum, after which we should have drained this, and accordingly another actually came, which we were with difficulty allowed to refuse to empty entirely. Nor could this be done but by ordering our people to get the boat ready for our departure. When, having concluded this extraordinary feast by three cups of tea each, we took our leave and reached Reykjavik about ten o'clock, but did not for some time recover the effects of this most involuntary intemperance. <coughs> Monday, July 3rd, 1809. Three days of tolerably fine weather were followed by one of almost continued rain, and indeed it was hardly possible to stir abroad the whole week on account of the wet. I rode, however, one morning to the hot spring, where I found a tent pitched, and as many Icelandic women and girls as it would possibly hold, sheltering themselves in it from the weather. They had come with their linen, which was brought on horses from the town, to the hot spring where all the clothes of the people for many miles around were washed. Some of them had a few little, miserable potatoes, not so large as a full-sized walnut, which they were cooking in the spring for their dinner, which they offered me. I had carried with me some eider duck's eggs for the purpose of trying how long it would take to boil them hard, and I found they required ten minutes, whilst lying in a part of the water where the thermometer rose to 200 degrees. We stopped at Tingivale to take the leave of the priest, and having refreshed ourselves with some rich cream which he offered us, we then pursued our course in a southeasterly direction, among the innumerable cracks, rents, and hills of rugged lava, which rendered traveling extremely fatiguing for the horses, and by no means free from danger. We were then full half an hour in crossing a place of not more than two or three hundred yards, except that we were occupied some little time in helping the horse of the priest Egg Closen from a hole into which he'd fallen among the rocks, where he had torn the skin more than halfway down his leg. This misfortune, which lamed the poor animal considerably, and which to a native any other country, who, like this man, was worth only one horse in the world, would have been a cause of uneasiness, if not of complaint. It had no such effect on Ed Closen. When I was lamenting the number of lives which Ed Closen assured me were lost among the holes that are here everywhere met with, he stopped me by saying, It is God's will that it should be so. On arriving at the opposite side of the chasm, we found ourselves in a somewhat better track, but as our friends from Eiderbag and Tingavale were not thoroughly acquainted with this country, it was advised that we should call it a peasant's house, which was but little out of the way where we might procure something to apply to the leg of the wounded horse and at the same time might inquire after a guide on reaching the cottage there was only an old woman at home who nevertheless made us welcome and immediately produced some excellent milk for our refreshment and some sire or sore way which answered both for washing the horse's wounds and for drink to our guides our female guide now took leave of us after having given us directions for our route which lay almost entirely among the broken lava. The rest of our road to Middalar, where we proposed passing the night, was along the margin of the lake, and we reached the place about 8 o'clock in the evening. Our tents were placed near the church and the house of the priest, who soon came down to welcome us, and offer anything we might want that his house would afford. As most necessary, I first requested that we might have some fire prepared to cook our victuals by, "'during which operation I was witness to a scene "'that afforded me no small degree of amusement. "'After Jacob had been gone into the house "'some considerable time with the fish "'that was to be cooked for our dinners, "'I began to be rather impatient "'and begged to be shown into the kitchen "'that I might see if anything had happened. "'I was conducted thither by a female "'who took hold of my hand "'and led me through a dark passage and a bedroom, "'where there was but a small portion of light "'admitted from an aperture in the roof "'into the cooking room, when so much smoke was rushing out through the sleeping room as the only vent, that I hesitated about proceeding, till I found myself dragged in. I, with difficulty, discovered two or three filthy females sitting on the ground, or on some broken chests, and in the middle of them Jacob, upon the bare earth. A fire was also on the ground between his legs, over which he held some fish cut in slices in the frying pan, an article which caused considerable astonishment among the women. Close by him sat a pretty Icelandic girl, who had won Jacob's regard so much that every now and then, with his knife, he turned out a slice of the fish for her, while she, in return for every piece thus offered, rose from the ground, hugged him about the neck, and kissed him. This innocent custom, in use among both the male and female Icelanders, upon the most trivial occasions, was here exemplified in a very strong and ludicrous manner, and so occupied the attention of Jacob who probably mistook, for a mark of affection, what was in reality nothing more than an expression of gratitude. That I was obliged to tap the honest fellow on the shoulder and remind him that I had not yet had my dinner, and that I wished to have some of the fish saved for me. Before going out of the house, I was anxious to make some trifling present to the mistress of it, a little, dirty, ugly old woman, by no means free from cutaneous diseases. I presented to her a snuff-box, but her modesty would at first only allow her to suppose that I meant the contents of it for her. As soon, however, she was made to understand that the box also was to be included in a gift, I had the mortification to find myself, before I was even aware of it, in the embraces of this grateful old lady, from which I extricated myself with all possible haste, and performed a most copious ablution at the nearest stream." Our course had hitherto been westerly, but we now turn our faces to the south, and look toward Skalholt, pursuing a tolerably good track. Immediately surrounding Skalholt, we remarked the ground formed into a number of little hills, among them which was to be seen here and there the steam arising from some hot springs, and on the opposite shores of the river Hvita, which is here of considerable width, is situated a small and rather grassy mountain. In the southeast, over a low range of hills, Hecla reared its head in our full view, covered in snow more than halfway down from the summit. We had scarcely pitched our tents when a handsome young widow, on the, of the name of Jönsson, richly dressed in the Icelandic fashion, came down and invited us to her house, where she set before us some wren or rye pottage in a tureen and a basin of cream and sugar. It was one of the best Icelandic houses I had ever entered, and was, moreover in every part, remarkable for its extreme cleanliness— in which respect our hostess was no less conspicuous. The rooms were wainscoted and painted blue and red, and there was a good library, belonging, however, to the school of Bextader, the lector of which place, who was brother to Madame Joneson, frequently consulted it. The collection contained many of the classics, but consisted chiefly of Icelandic books and manuscripts, relating to the political and ecclesiastical history of the country, mixed with extracts from such works as are most scarce in the island. The farm belonging to this house was reckoned a considerable one, and had several buildings appropriated to the use of cattle. But of these, the floors are never covered with any sort of litter, so that the poor animals must have but a sorry bed on the bare rock. From the exceeding filthiness of the place, it seemed as if a dunghill near the outside of the building was but seldom replenished. At Skalholt for the first time I saw people cutting hay, which they do by the means of a scythe, with a straight stem about six feet long, from which project at right angles two handles, and at the ground, producing their crop of hay, is broken into innumerable hillocks. They find it advantageous to use a blade of not more than two feet in length. In the evening, I met with a truly wretched object, a woman who was afflicted with the malady called among the Icelanders Líkthráu, a species of leprosy, or more properly, elephantiasis, Her face was so corroded by the disease that it presented the most disgusting spectacle I ever saw in my life, and her legs and hands were swollen to an enormous size, these latter being also covered with a thick and almost white skin, lying in great wrinkles. Yet she still complained of no particular pain, and seemed to walk with tolerable ease. This complaint is said to have existed in Iceland ever since the first colonization of the country, and is supposed by many to have been brought over at that time from Norway where, according to some accounts, it may be traced to a period of high antiquity. Its prevalence and virulence are probably in great degree ascribable to the use of woolen clothes, and to the mode of living and habits of the natives, for they take but little exercise, except in the fishing season. Tuesday, July 18th. Coffee was prepared for us by Madame Joneson this morning, and was succeeded by a glass of rum, previously to our taking our breakfast, which consists of a large dish of boiled salmon, eaten with butter and vinegar, and after it a mess of mutton, boiled to rags, mixed with melted butter, and eaten with a sweet sauce of oatmeal and sugar. During this repast, the persons who were sent for the preceding evening to be my guides to Hecla arrived with the unwelcome intelligence that, in the present state of the weather and morasses, they neither could nor would undertake to conduct me to that place. Their apprehensions principally arose from the necessity there would have been for them to climb a volcanic mountain, which many of them believed to be the abode of the damned, and which all of the lower class of people regard with the greatest horror. At first I thought of waiting a few days for better weather, but the continuance of the rain and the little prospect there was of it clearing up induced me, before the evening, to determine upon departing for Reykjavik on the morrow. We took leave of our kind hostess at Skalholt, and set out upon our journey, proposing to travel on, keeping along the south side of Aptvaten, till we reached Tingevale. As we ascended the hills on the west side of Aptvaten, the rain changed to thick mist accompanied by a degree of cold, which I should scarcely have thought could have been experienced south of the Arctic Circle in the month of July. A flannel underdress and two great coats, in addition to my usual quantity of apparel, were not sufficient to keep me warm. Reykjavik, Tuesday, July twenty fifth. This, which was the day appointed for the catching of the salmon in the Loch's Elbe, at a place near its confluence with the sea, is held as a sort of annual festival by the natives for many miles around, and afforded a scene of gaiety and pleasure that I should scarcely have expected to witness in Iceland. At ten o'clock in the morning I repaired to the spot amidst hundreds of natives, some on foot, but more on horseback, all dressed in their best apparel, and presenting a truly interesting spectacle, to which the unusual fineness of the day contributed not a little. On every side there were to be seen the happy countenances of the natives, and there was visible among the different ranks of people a degree of familiarity that is perhaps scarcely to be met with in any other country. For men, women, and children of all ages and conditions, the bishop, the midwife, the washerwoman, and the tailor, were all conversing with each other without restraint and on terms of perfect equality. The individuals just enumerated, male as well as female, were clad after the Danish fashion. Seated upon a heap of stones in one place was to be seen a cheerful group of Icelanders with a bowl of butter before them, which they were eating as a relish to the dry but uncooked heads of the codfish. And at a little distance from them, a party of Danes had laid aside their favorite pipe and were regaling themselves with slices of smoked salmon, placed between rye bread and butter, which they every now and then washed down with the contents of their rum bottle. On arriving at the banks of the river about six miles from Reykjavik, I remarked a numerous party of men and women wading in the water up to their knees or even waists, and catching with their hands the fish which swarmed in the deeper parts of the stream. As soon as caught, they threw them on shore, where another party was employed in counting them and flinging them into wooden panniers, in which they were to be conveyed upon the horses to Reykjavik, and there salted. Before 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 2,200 salmon were caught in the Lax Elba, all of which Mr. Phelps bought of the proprietor of the place, and cured two-thirds of them for exportation, the remaining third being allotted to those who gave their assistance at the fishery, as a compensation for their trouble. Previously to our departure from Iceland, another change in the government took place. An agreement was now entered into between Captain Jones, Mr. Phelps, and the principal Icelanders, by which it was settled that the former government should be restored, and that it should be held responsible for the persons and property of all British subjects. These affairs having been brought to a conclusion by Friday, the 25th of August, the Margaret and Anne, and the Orion, were finally ordered to weigh anchor on the afternoon of the same day. I believe not one of our little party left Iceland with feelings of regret. The weather, which had at best been unfavorable, was now daily growing worse and not only rendered our longer abode in the island disagreeable, but threatened us with a dangerous passage homeward. The nights were rapidly lengthening, and time hung heavily upon our hands. It was impossible to forbear contrasting the wretchedness and poverty of everything about us with the comfort of our happy homes. And in addition to these and similar considerations, our stay at Reykjavik had been in many instances rendered unpleasant by political squabbles, by commercial misfortunes, and above all by the ill conduct of some of the persons employed by Mr. Phelps in an inferior capacity. A delightful wind now added to our happiness, and we congratulated each other on the prospect of a short and prosperous voyage to our native shores. But the next morning, what different ideas crowded upon our minds, when, about six or seven o'clock, we were awakened by a smoke and a strong smell of burning that issued from the different hashways, especially from that in the fore part of the ship, and left us no room to doubt but that the vessel was on fire, and that the flames would soon burst out. We were then twenty leagues distant from the nearest shore, a barren and inhospitable coast, and the wind was blowing from that quarter, so that to gain even this was impossible. We were also unprovided with boats sufficient to have contained one half of our crew, nor could any boats have assisted us in such a tempestuous ocean, so that our joy was inconceivable, and our astonishment scarcely less so, when, but a few minutes after the discovery of our misfortune, a distant sail was detected, which, improbable as it seemed to us, we knew could be no other than the Orion. After having put about our vessel, and come sufficiently near, we hoisted signals of distress, upon which the Orion crowded all her sail, and in about two or three hours Mr. Jorgensen himself came on board. The fire had by this time so much increased that it was found necessary to have all the boats in readiness to convey the people to the Orion. Every precaution was in the meanwhile used to suffocate the flame with wet swabs, sailcloths, etc., and it thus at least to retard the disaster, but all to no purpose. We so plainly saw our situation that it was but a little time before the whole of us had left the Margaret and Anne, except a few who remained to cut open the decks and make a last effort by throwing down water to extinguish the flames. Such, however, was the ascendancy they had already gained, And as such the volumes of smoke and fire which instantaneously burst forth, that delay only endangered the lives of the men, and it was found necessary almost immediately to abandon the attempt and give up the vessel to her fate. By twelve or one o'clock every living thing, not excepting the sheep, cats, and dogs, was secured, but of our property it was impossible to save anything, excepting only a very few articles that were with us in the cabin, for the fire, at the time of its first discovery, had taken hold of the place in which everything most valuable was kept. We were but too happy to escape with our lives, and with the clothes upon our backs. It was not long before the timbers of the vessel were destroyed, but the copper bottom continued floating about like a great cauldron filled with everything that was combustible in a liquid and blazing state, till the sad spectacle was concealed from our view by a dense fog at four or five o'clock in the afternoon when, with a fairer breeze, we steered back for Reykjavik, the Orion not affording the accommodation for so many people, as were now on board, nor being furnished with provisions enough for a voyage to England. It had been whispered among our crew previously to their leaving the Margaret and Anne, that some of the Danes had probably set fire to the vessel, and this suspicion was now confirmed even by their own confessions. Two of them, therefore, who were most strongly suspected, were put in irons. On the fourth of September, we once more left these unfortunate shores. We directed our course straight for England, proposing in our way to touch at the Faroe Islands. On the twentieth of the same month, we thanked God on finding ourselves safe at anchor in Leith Roads. The journey of William Jackson Hooker through Iceland in the summer of 1809 was a typical piece of second-decade travel literature. Its descriptions of treks through foreign lands and the occasional close call were enough to whet the appetite of a public hungry for adventure. Its long digressions about the classifications of plants, which I omitted here, thankfully, were gratifying for the gentleman naturalists in the audience. And the descriptions of native peoples were just condescending enough to reinforce the British sense of imperial and cultural superiority. There was also a political dimension to the book. In the summer of 1809, while Hooker and his pals were there, the first rumblings of an Icelandic independence movement from Denmark were beginning to get started. In fact, as we'll see in an upcoming episode of Second Decade, nationalist independence movements were pretty hot in Scandinavian countries in the 18-teens, and Denmark's long grip on Iceland and Norway together was beginning to loosen. You can see why Journal of a Tour in Iceland was a success and put Hooker, who again was only 24 at the time, on the scientific and literary map. His booze-soaked road trip through Iceland with all its salmon and rancid butter was only the first of his adventures. He traveled throughout Europe through 1814, collecting and cataloging plants, and ultimately became a professor at the University of Glasgow and the director of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, That's about as high as you could get in the world of English botany in the 19th century. He died in 1865. I found a copy of his strange little book, an original edition published in 1813, on a dusty shelf in the Huntington Library, a research repository in San Marino, California. It remains one of the paradigm examples of travelogue literature of the early 19th century. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out some of the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like The Dangerous History Podcast, Dead Ideas, Election College, Explorers, The China History Podcast, the Way of Improvement Leads Home, and many more. Remember, the Second Decade book is coming. Yes, I'm still working on it. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash Munger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Journal of a Tour of Iceland in the Summer of 1809 by William Jackson Hooker, Privately printed by Jay Keimer of Edinburgh, 1811. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Special thanks to Mike Porter, who portrayed William Jackson Hooker. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.